I just want to read a couple of lines one more time. It says, Redemption, a wonderful story. Glad message for you and for me that Jesus... Now just key into these phrases right here because they're going to be very applicable to us today. Jesus has purchased our pardon and paid all the debt on the tree. Then the next line says, From death unto life He has brought us and made us by grace sons of God. A fountain is open for sinners. O wash and be cleansed in the blood. Father, this morning we would ask for help once again. As we open up Your Word, Lord, we understand these things are all spiritually discerned. They are far beyond us, Lord. Uh, we, especially uh, opening this book of Ephesians, these are in the heavenlies. This is uh, beyond, way, way beyond us, Lord. And so we need Your help this morning. We need Your Spirit as He guides us, as He always does through the Word. He teaches us, uh, He equips us, and He He fills us. And so, Lord, this morning... Through your word, we would ask that you would fill your servants. Feed us, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. The book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Do you have your little handout? Who's got them? All right. Anybody? Okay, good. Stick them in your Bibles and leave them there, because I'm going to refer back to them. I have a couple extra. Does anybody? Derek? All right. I'm going to have, you're going to have to share, because I don't have too many. A couple extra. Matthew, you probably didn't get one. Um, I'll, I'll try to print more off. I need to print a whole big stack of them because back home I've been kind of walking through the same thing and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out there also. But uh, we have started through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we, the last time I was here, if you remember back, and if you don't, that's totally fine. We'll do just a little bit of review here. But I had spent a number of weeks, three or four, whatever it was, uh, doing a bit of an overview of the book, and I was doing it by way of, I drew this little analogy or a little illustration of a, of a, of a train. And this is really what Paul is going to bring out in this book. He's going he's gonna to lay out what grace is. And I'm calling it, I'm coining it or giving the term the mechanics of grace. It's like a mechanical system. We're going to see this, uh, yeah, a well-oiled machine uh, of the working of grace. And um, if you look at your little drawing, I drew the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the power. He's empowering this thing. We thought about it this morning. The strength. I loved it. He set his face, as it were, towards Jerusalem, and nothing was going to stop him. He was driving this thing. And throughout the first three and 13 verses of the book, you are going to read the term us in Christ many times, like 25 different times or something like that. Us in Christ. So there we are. We are in him. We're the little guys inside of that train. And it says we are chosen in him. But then we see that we saw that the father, he is the fuel. It's the love that the father has for his son. And everything that you are going to find in this book, everything that is now yours in Christ, is essentially because the Father loved His Son. And He is pouring out on His Son all the favor of heaven. And you just so happen to be in Him. Uh, And as Paul walks through this, the first uh, verses 3 to 6, he is going to give you three big, what I call them, boxcars of grace. We looked at, Paul tells you that you are... And will be, and this is the beautiful thing of grace, is that grace sees you as you will be, not as you are right now. And praise, praise God for that. 
that you are and you will be holy and blameless is the first boxcar. Secondly, he told us that we will and we are, we will be and we are adopted as sons. Then thirdly, in that little three verse section, he is going, he tells us that we are and we will be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, if you look in that little drawing underneath those three boxcars, I wrote under holy and blameless, verse 1-7 to 1-10, Paul is going to expound on that. So we are going to walk down the tracks, and as it were, we're going to open up this first boxcar. And there's a title over the top of it that says, Holy and Blameless. And those four verses there, there are going to be boxes inside, and we get like Christmas. We get to take these out, and we get to see what's inside. What does it mean that Paul calls you through the inspiration of the Spirit, holy and blameless. And we can open up these boxes and go, what's in here? And then we're going to look at as we walk down the tracks, and this is going to be weeks down the road, 111 to 119, adopted as sons. What does it mean to be adopted now as sons? We're going to open up the boxes inside of there. Look at this. And the crux, the, the majority of this whole book, and it should bring great light to the whole purposes and plans of God. The majority of this book in one, uh, sorry, that's 111 to 114, and then 115 to really the end of the book, he is going to expound on the fact that everything that Christ has done is to the praise of the glory of His grace. Everything that you are in Christ, we are going to find the reality, the reason, the agenda behind it, is that so that one day we stand in his presence and we lavish on him the glory that he deserves. That's the whole purpose. That's all of the, the story of humanity. Is that one day when we are in his presence, redeemed now, glorified, that we will add to his glory. Oh, we're going to have a lot of good stuff coming. That's going to be the byproduct. But the reality is that we will be to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so the last time I was here, we spent a decent amount of time and we just looked at, what does it mean now? Paul calls you holy and blameless. What does that mean? And we considered that holiness, more than just, you know, in the in the world's view, we have perverted, we have we have... And I like that word this morning. We have twisted the idea of what it means to be holy. Oh, it's you sprinkle holy water on him, and that's not holy. Holiness is, I think Al said it last time, it's the character and the nature of God. It's the word we use to describe God's nature. The Bible tells us our nature, the way the Bible describes it, is called sin. Last time we looked at a story, I drew a little picture on the board in Exodus chapter 19 that God was up on a mountain, and that mountain burned with fire. It was thankfully, for their sake, there was a thick cloud there. Because I can't imagine if that cloud was removed, I think they would have all been consumed. But there was a thick cloud up there, and there was thunder and lightning and fire. And they said to Moses, you remember, you go up there. You go up there, and in our nature, born in sin, it's not what we do, it's who we are. In our nature, we would never want to go up there. But Paul tells us in Ephesians here, you have been made holy. The character, the nature of God now, in you. So what we're going to do today, is now we're going to walk down the tracks, and we're going to open up those doors. 
And we're going to look at the first box. There's going to be three boxes inside of this holy and blameless. What does this mean? We're going to look at the first box here now. Read with me, and this is as far as we're going to get today. In verse number 7, we're going to begin this unboxing of the train of the boxcar of what it means to be holy and blameless. And read verse number 7. This is as far as we're going to get today. In Him... This is why I read that song. This is why it's going to be so important. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. That's as far as we're going to go today. In Him. Now we're going to walk down the tracks. And we're going to take out a box. And on that box, it's going to tie, it's, the title is going to be Redemption. What does that mean? Very familiar term to us. Uh, Bible students, we, we, uh, we, we throw this word around, we, we sing about it all the time. I would say generally, we probably all have a fairly good understanding of what the term means. Or the Bible calls you and me redeemed now. And so we come in and we unpack this box. We have been redeemed. And praise God that this is true. But what does this word mean? Give me some ideas. What is the word redeemed or redemption? What does it mean? Matthew looks like he's got an answer. I think of reconciled. I think of something that's being brought back. Yeah. Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. It's definitely that. Any others? Daryl, you look like you, you're chewing on. To buy back. Yep. Any others? Nobody else? Caleb? You look like you're in deep thought. Face it was good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are all, it's, that's exactly right. The word in the Greek is this. And this is where I want to spend most of the morning. Apolytrosis is the word. And it means, to, in perfect agreement, a, a releasing, a releasing Affected by payment of ransom. Okay, that's the main, you know, the, when you look in a Strong's, it's got like a, a main definition, then it'll give you some bullet points underneath that. A releasing affected by payment of ransom. Or then the bullet points underneath redemption, deliverance, liberation procured by the payment of a ransom. So it definitely stresses this idea of a payment. The word really uh, is a slave trading word. I'm sure you've all heard this. It's a slave trading word. Uh, a ransom price, if you were back, even I would say even in the early Americas, uh, when, when, when slave trading was prevalent, um, there was, this seems absurd because I always ask, who, who would ever do this? But if you were on the, cho- on the auction block, you know, you're a slave and you're being sold and you're standing up there in chains, you brought along... There was a redemption price. What that meant is, let's say it was 50 coins. Someone could come along and lay that redemption price down and essentially make this person, allow this person to go free. Now you gotta think, in the old ancient worlds, that didn't happen probably very often. I can't imagine that somebody would say, you know what, I feel sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pay the price. Well that should take your mind back to the remembrance meeting and go, Lord, why'd you do that? It doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that? 
Just like that old slave in that old slave world. Who would do that to pay a price to set a man free? But that's what redemption means. It was a, a slave world where you could pay the redeeming price, the redemption price, and set a man free. And that to me, that the meaning of that word, that's enough. That's a beautiful word. But it goes back to the Exodus story. Remember, last time I was here, I told the story. We drew it. I was going to set the whiteboard up, and I didn't want to. But I drew the story of up on that mountain. Remember the, the, uh, the fire and the cloud up on the mountain? The people were down low. They were down, and there was a limit. Most, our God told Moses, you set a limit there, and you cannot go past that limit. But I was, as I was studying this, I was asking the question, well, how, how did they find themselves at the foot of this mountain? Well, let's go back. Go back to Exodus chapter 12, and I'm not going to really get into a lot of detail here. Just for sake of, we're going to just read a few verses, a hand, maybe 15, 20 verses, and reconsider the story here. It's a beautiful story. This is really where the, the story of redemption began. It's not, the, it's not the first mention, but it's close. But back in, uh, in uh, Exodus 12... You remember the story? We're in the uh, the Charlton Heston and the Yule Brenner days, right? Maybe some of you don't or don't remember that, but you know that the old Exodus story, Charlton Heston, Yule Brenner, chapter twelve, verse one. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, Israel had been under the tyrannical thumb of the Pharaoh in Egypt for four hundred years. They were slaves now. And God says this, verse 2, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And I would say, praise the Lord, if you know how you apply to this story, this is where your life began. This is where it began. For me, it was October 12, 2000. That's where my life began. The Lord reset the calendar for me. Everything was new. The day I got saved, everything was new. Josh started October 12, 2000. I was very different before then. They tell, he tells them, this now will be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house, a lamb for a household. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. You think about being a child in this. I told the last time we were, we were talking about uh, that day of atonement where that man would have those white garments on. I said, think about the children in the crowd, bloodied, as they saw that, that high priest. Well, think about the, the child in one of these homes here. Dad brings in a little hero lamb. Oh, cute, so precious. The tenth day of the month, this little baby lamb, it's my pet. I'm going to name it Tommy. Oh, such a cute little guy. Then all of a sudden, four days later, Dad gets the knife out. What? Can you imagine being a child in that house? I mean, you should all put yourself in those shoes, because that's the reality of what we look towards, even the remembrance meeting. We look and go, Lord, that was your precious lamb. You take that lamb. Then verse 7, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat. So the, the side posts, they would take the blood and they would strike it on the two side posts and above the header, they'd strike that blood. Down to verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you 
on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when that death angel comes through that land that night, I will pass over. It's where we get the name for 3,500 years later. The Jews still observe Passover, going right back to this night. I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. That night, a strike was made against Pharaoh. This man who had these people in chain for 400 years, it's going to be such a spiritual picture of you and I. We were like this, chained by an enemy, dragging us along, and we were powerless to this enemy. And that night, a blow was struck against that man. And it is no accident. God is not a God of accidents. 1,500 years later, give or take a couple years, whatever. But the self-same night, when in Israel they would be putting that lamb to death, the temple, 1,500 years that night, they would be putting to death that animal in the temple. Something so important, well, the most important thing was going on. The Lord Jesus Christ would be laying his head down on that cross. Father, it is finished. Price paid. It's done. And a blow was struck to our enemy. But that's not the end of the story. And it looks like, and I believe this with all my heart, but you can walk through when Israel camped from here to here to here to here, and it looks like it was three days later. And if you know what you know about the Bible and how vitally important the Lord pays to certain days, it looks like three days later now, they are in chapter 14. Three days later, read with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihaharoth between Migdal and the sea. So the Lord leads them. If you understand this geographically, he leads them into Pharaoh what seems like a trap. They're, they're trapped against the Red Sea. Migdal means stronghold. Something very bad. Pihaharoth means the mouth of the grave. And Pharaoh looks and says, they're trapped. What kind of a maniac would lead them there up against the sea? Oh, what a picture this is going to be. Three days later, the Lord dies and he goes into the ground and up against the mouth of the grave and the stronghold. And the enemy looks and says, we got him. Verse 3, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people, people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? 
So he made ready his chariots, and he took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army. And he overtook them and camped at the sea by Pahabarot in front of Baal Zephon. Verse 13, I love this. This is like probably the best part of the whole story. Moses said to the people, he stands up in front of him, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. And he points his finger at that enemy. He says, guys, you see that enemy right there? Those Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see them again. You'll never see them again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will set, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. We all know the rest of the story. The waters divide. The Israelites pass through on dry land. Don't miss that part. It wasn't muddy, moggy. I love the duck hunt. Let me tell you what. The edge of those sloughs, like boots are sunk all the way down to here, that wasn't Israel. There was no bit of water picturing God's judgment that would befall those people. The The ground was cracked dry ground, and they walked across. And as soon as they got over, Pharaoh went, we got him, and he goes. And those waters came crashing down. We know the story. The power of death. Those chains that had those people in bondage, boom, they were broken and free. Look at what it says in 15 now. Then Moses, chapter 15, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord. Oh, this is the law. This is first mentioned here. The first time singing is mentioned in the Bible. It's reserved to the redeemed. I will sing to the Lord, for he has tried gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. He set his face, as it were, towards Jerusalem. Verse 6, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You, verse 13, have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. The people whom you have redeemed... And look at verse 17, look at verse 16, rather. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. That's redemption. You will bring them in and plant them up on your mountain. 
The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. I ask the question, how did those people get there to the foot of that mountain? And we know the spiritual reality, like we talked about last time, the reality of this truth is, guys, we get to go all the way up. We get to go right into the presence of God. We talked about that this morning in our remembrance meeting. It's as we gather here, we are in essence in spirit. We are there in heaven. We are on the mountain. What a miraculous truth. We get to go up. This is the story of redemption. It's like Pharaoh stood there and he looked at God, clenching his fists, said, you want your people back? You're going to take him out of my cold, dead hands. Like our king, the father, he rolls up his sleeves and he says, oh, we can arrange that. We can arrange it. And that's what redemption did. It's a slave trading word. A ransom price was set. And the Lord Jesus came in and he set the price down. He paid the ransom price. I dug in a little bit deeper to this word. Back to Ephesians chapter 1. I dug in a little bit deeper. I started kind of breaking the word down. And I realized it's a, it's a compound word. This apolytrosis is the word redemption. Apolytrosis. It's two words in the Greek. Two separate words of a compound word. The first is apo, A-P-O. And the word means separation, or a state of separation. Listen to this, a kind of separation of one thing from another, by which the union of the two is destroyed. You know, we have this idea in marriage, we, we say, you know, my wife and I, well, we're separated right now. That means, you know, I'm living in an apartment here and she's at the house, we're, we're separated that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a clean divorce. We're talking about a type of separation where there's no legal binding anymore. That's this separation. And this is going to be very uh, very significant with this book. Because this book, Ephesians, it's the marriage contract. Paul is trying to tell you, you are now married to one and there needs to be a clean divorce. A clean divorce. A clean separation. I don't even like that word divorce. Separation. There is a clean break from something to something else. That's the idea of the word. The second aspect of this word, though, litron, a polytrosis, the word litron, it means the price for redeeming or a ransom. So what we learn of these two words, what we learn from this, is that number one, separation must take place, one of which the old union is destroyed, it's dissolved, it's gone. And number two, a price has to be paid. Well, look at our text again. Turn back to Ephesians 1 and verse 7. Look at what Paul says. Listen for these two. He brings out these two aspects of the definition. He says this again. In him. In him. 
we have been, we have redemption. Then he says, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Did you hear them both? They're there. First he says, now, now you are in him. You've been separated from that old world out there. Not to go back into it or anything else it offers. That's what you've been separated from. That old union is destroyed. And you're separated into him. This is where this is where holiness begins. I'm going to call this the past tense of holiness. We are going to look at over the next few weeks the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense of holiness. That's what these three boxes are going to look like. The past tense of holiness is that you have been redeemed. Again, he's up on that mountain, remember. And we were down here. But Paul is pleading with you, not anymore. Now we are up there too. Now live like it. I believe in the church we have failed so miserably on this. I believe we've failed so miserably. Especially in my generation. We have to wear the same clothes. We have to, we have to drive the same uh, keeping up with the Joneses vehicles. We have to live in the same keeping up with the Joneses houses. And you younger generation folks, listen to me hard. Don't believe this lie. Don't believe this lie. You want to hear what this lie is? This is it. This is the way it sounds. The American dream. Oh, the American dream. It's the white picket fences house. It's the, the shiny car in the driveway. Oh, man, your neighbors are going to look at you and go, woo That guy, that gal, she's really, she's arrived. Whoa. It's all a lie. It's a lie. I was at wrestling this week with the boys. And uh, we, we, <laughs> we pretty much thrift store all our stuff. We get hand-me-downs from the rest of the family. That's how my kids dress. We go to wrestling and it's all the, oh, my banker is there and my realtor is there. And those, they're very wealthy. And all their kids are uh, uh, under armor, everything up and down. And there was a, I sat down and I went, oh, I was kind of embarrassed. And then I realized, that's the lie. That's the lie. I'm going to just look like them. Because you know what happens when you buy into this lie? You become a slave all over again. You are chained to this. You wake up one day and you realize... You flat out have no time for God. To have all this garbage that the world says you have to have. 
You have to prostitute yourself out to earn it. That's what you do. You sell yourself for it. The author of Hebrews, Brother Derek read it this morning. Probably worthwhile to turn there. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, please. We're okay on time. Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews, he says it best. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews says to lay aside, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so easily, or I think it's the King James, the, the, the sin that besets us. Uh, I think Derek uh, says entangle us. Is that the NASB? That sin which entangles us. Those are all great words. We're all running this race. 1 Corinthians 9, we were just in our Thursday night Bible study back home. We were in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, we're all running this race. And he relates it to those old Greek games where they would run for a, a, a leaf crown. Like, give me a break, Paul's saying. Look at the work they put into. These men devote their lives. Look at the Olympic games. Four years of their lives they devote to just get a little stupid thing to hang around their neck. Paul's pleading with you in 1 Corinthians 9. We're running for something so much more important than a stupid little wreath and a, a perishable crown. Ours is imperishable. Oh, if we could get a glimpse of what's waiting for us, how different you think our lives would be. And yet God has given us in His Word. He's pleading with you. Do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed. Paul says, "Lay," or the author of Hebrews says, lay aside the weight and the sin which besets you. If I ask you, what are the sins? What are your sins that beset you? What are they? I'm not asking, just you think about it. What are the sins that beset you? And I would hope, I would hope that you know yourself enough to know where your weaknesses are in your sin life. I hope you know yourself enough. Because I'm telling you what, your enemy does. Romans 13, Paul says this, Make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't put yourself in a place where you're going to be easily tempted to fall. Well, how could you do this if you don't even know what your own weaknesses are? So lay aside the sin, he says. Lay them aside. Oh, this is a no-brainer, really. This is a no-brainer in the Christian walk. In this race analogy... It's, it's, it's the equivalent of, of really of breaking the rules of the race. It's if you're running and you decide to run off the track and take a shortcut. You're, you're running the, uh, I don't know, Boston Marathon and you decide, oh, I'm going to go down the alleyway. Well, it disqualifies you. I, I was thinking about, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, what's the big run or the uh, bike? Uh, 
uh, what? Armstrong, Lance Armstrong won how many, uh, how many medals, how many of those, uh, whatever that stupid, I drawn a major blank, whatever that race was, Tour but he, the Tour de France, but he got disqualified of all of them. Why? Because they found out he was taking performance enhancing drugs. And it's all gone. That's what sin will do to you. Lay it aside. Get rid of it. And this is the no-brainer. We look in the Christian life and go, well, yeah. But the author of Hebrews tells us this. Lay aside the weight. The weight that besets you. This is a much less popular topic to talk about. Can you imagine in a marathon, a runner, he puts on an 80-pound pack and he's going to run this thing. Is it against the rules? No. But really, really stupid. (laughs) What a disadvantage. What a hindrance. And I ask you this. What are the weights in your life? I can tell you what mine are. What are the weights? The author of Hebrews is saying, run, run, lay aside those weights. What is hindering you? What is hindering you from wholeheartedly following the Lord? This is a much, much more difficult exam. This, this list is endless. In this country we live in, could be family, hobbies, career, the house, whatever. I mean, there, this, this list could be endless. But you want to know what your weights are? I'll give you a very, this is just my personal, I'll give you a test. Go home tonight as you get ready for bed and tell the Lord, I'm going to spend two hours in prayer. And you sit quietly, find a quiet place. Sit quietly before the Lord and commit to an hour. To just shut up and be quiet before the Lord. Notice where your mind goes. What you start thinking about. It's a good exam. It'll start telling you the areas where these are the things that are weighting me down. Like I said, in this country, this list could be endless. We are so oversaturated with pleasure, with weight, with garbage. We're supporting ourselves as we've kind of gone full time. We're supporting ourselves with a a part-time eBay business. I was telling the Scots about this last night. And uh, just recently we bought a a semi-large comic book collection. A man passed away. He owned this. uh, And we got to know a little bit about him through the the gal selling it. He seemed like he was a a, a semi-respectable businessman from, from Williston. Um, he was a lawyer, so I don't know if respectable would be the right term, but, but he was a, you know, he was a, he was a gentleman businessman. He was a lawyer. And, uh, this comic book collection was like 60 or so, it was a half a trailer full of boxes of, of books and DVDs and comic books. And you could tell that this was this man's life. His life. And my dad and I, as we were going through this, we were looking at it before we bought it, 
And both of us kind of were feeling a little saddened almost. Because this is what this man devoted his life to. My dad at one point said, can you imagine reading every one of these? Because the gal said, yeah, he read every one of them. Can you imagine reading every one of these? And my dad said, you know, this man is now in eternity. He said, do you wish, do you wish you could ask him if he has any regrets now? This is what this man devoted his life to. Listen, Christian. What are you devoting your life to? Where are your weights? Again, God is up on the mountain. We were down here. But Apo Lytron, you have been separated. Now live like it. Don't live down. Don't live down to the standard of the world. The world calls it keeping up with the Joneses. I'm sure you've all heard that term. I say it's keeping down with the Joneses. Don't live down to their standard. Lay aside the weight. Don't believe the lie. With just uh, two minutes we have remaining, there was two definitions to this word. Remember, apo, separated. And when we are talking about, again, we are opening up this boxcar of holiness. Separated is the first movement of God. That's why I say it is the past sense of holiness. That you have been separated unto God. Apo. But the second aspect, the second part of this definition, Lytron. Remember, there was a price paid. And we read that we have redemption in Ephesians. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. There was a price, a very costly price that was paid. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ would be the ransom price that would be brought into the heavenlies. Like that man on the day of, the, uh, of, the day of atonement, that blood would be brought into the heavenlies. Before the judge, on your behalf, to ransom you from the clutches of death. That grave, the slave master that we were all subjected to. Romans 5.14 says, yet death reigned all supreme. Like that Pharaoh story, it was like death said, oh, you want them? You come get them out of my cold, dead hands. The Lord Jesus said, we can arrange that. We can arrange that. Death had you in its chains. What were the chains? Paul tells us, we have, rede- been re- we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Our sin and our trespass had us chained to this enemy. We were powerless, leading us to destruction. But Jesus came in, he laid down the price on your behalf, separating you, a clean divorce, 
A clean separation, legal bind, no longer dissolved, no longer anymore, completely dissolved, separating you from that master and placing you in himself. And he had to do both. He had to redeem you from the slave master. That was the blood on the door. But he also had to break those chains. That was the crossing of the Red Sea. Crushed that enemy and put him to death. Then Paul is going to go on, just a little teaser for next time. This is the past tense of holiness. That you have been redeemed. Broken. The separation has been made. But now the question is is begging, Lord, what do I do now in the present tense? I'm holy. I see that. I get what your word tells me. But how do I live right now today? Paul is going to go on. This is the next beautiful aspect of holiness, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us The mystery of his will. Now, the Lord and the Spirit are going to tell you, you want to know how you live today? I'll show you if you only ask. So the present tense of holiness now is that he is going to, and I appreciate this more than probably anything in my Christian walk, that I get to go before the throne of grace. Lord, what do you want me to do today? How can I live as a holy representative of yours? And the Lord says, oh, I'll show you. I will make known to you the mystery of my will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this awesome work of redemption. This incredible story, like the passion play that was played out so many years ago, as you would bring these, you would redeem these people from the hand of Pharaoh. Lord, how much greater... How much better, like the author of Hebrews is trying to relate so many times over and over again, how much better is our redemption today? Father, we thank you for the work of Calvary. Lord, our our entire day, we want to surround and lavish you with worth and praise and honor and tell you thank you for the work of Calvary, for what you have done for us, Lord. We do thank you once again. We praise you in your name. Amen.